Hello and welcome to Altamar, a global podcast to help you navigate the high seas of global politics. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Mooney Jensen. Today, Peter and I are eager to discuss the state of the world affairs with one of the most influential protagonists on the global stage of international affairs in modern history. You know the show, Madam Secretary? Well, we have the real deal here with us today. The first female Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, will join us later to share her insights and, more importantly, her views of the future. Mooney, let's just take a little step backward. So much has happened in the past four years, but especially in the last year, it seems like almost like our world has been turned upside down and a feeling that there's like no country, no organization, no singular genius who's able to bring order to this world, which is seems like out of control. And so, you know, you have the virus and climate destruction and faltering economies, fragile governments, polarization, social unrest, social media out of control. I mean, we all know the list, right? Yeah. And um, as our listeners know at Altamar, Peter and I usually look at issues not just from a U.S. perspective, but with a wider international lens. However, these days, no one can deny that the most impactful global event is the new U.S. presidential transition and what it represents, not just for the U.S., but also for geopolitics as a whole. After four years of chaos, we're finally seeing a road towards greater order and steadiness. U.S. re-engagement with the world has consequences not only for specific countries, and of course, we're all thinking of China, Russia, uh, European countries, the Middle East, and so on. But U.S. re-engagement also has the potential to reshape international bodies that look kind of stale, like the G7, the G20, the UN, NATO, EU, so many others. New efforts have blossomed, most recently in the form of the D10, a UK initiative to hold a democracy summit to offset China and the rise of autocrats. So whether these new initiatives will flourish is yet to be seen, but the truth is that a robust US foreign policy will shape every conversation, every region, and every institution. And Mooney, you know, the fact is that all of this needs an injection of protein or or adrenaline because the world has changed so significantly in recent years. I mean, if you look from Cuba to Iran or Saudi Arabia to the UK and Brexit, Israel, Syria, even Mexico, the realities and the dynamics of the world have changed so much. And the issues have changed, too. In the You know, people say that the coming decade may be China's. And that it may be an era of populist strongmen, an age of cyber attacks, an inflection point for social media, a key to deciding climate change, a moment of expansion for transnational drug and terrorism. All of that sounds like a downer, but if you allow me just a moment of optimism, it could also well be the era of a return of democratic countries banding together to resolve world issues. That's true, Peter. So let's dive deeper into this. We are going to welcome a self-described optimist who worries. Our guest today, Madeleine Albright, first female U.S. Secretary of State, U.N. Ambassador, Georgetown professor, diplomat, and businesswoman, head of Albright Stonebridge Group. She is a seven-time New York Times bestselling author who's witnessed most modern international relations from the front row. And now she's agreed to share with us her unique view of the world. Secretary Albright, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you with us on Altamar. Glad to be with you. Terrific. So let's start at home. In the past week, we've heard foreign policy speeches from both President Biden and Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, and they both have promised a re-engagement with the world. 
Do you think that the U.S. can recover its place at the head of the table? And what are the, some of the key opportunities and challenges that this country faces? Well, I do think that the U.S. will recover its place at the table. I think it's very important. Clearly, our reputation has been damaged by a lot of the policies of the last four years. But President Biden has made very clear the importance of us having partners in what we do. And so it's not head at the table to tell everybody what to do, but to really listen to what they have to say so that we can act together to improve the situation for all of us, both domestically and internationally. So yes, but it's going to take work. So let's talk a little bit about the impeachment procedures that took place in the U.S. Senate. And we do have to ask, you wrote a book a few years ago with an ominous title, which was Fascism, A Warning. And you explained that fascism, and I quote you, is not an ideology, but a process for holding power. At the time, when you were asked whether Donald Trump was his fascist, you said no, because he wasn't violent. So now, after the events in the Capitol on January 6th, do you now think Donald Trump is a fascist? And what will happen to this movement now that he's gone and the impact for U.S. democracy? Well, I did go through the steps of what I thought fascism was, which is somebody who identifies with one group at the expense of another that then becomes the scapegoat, somebody who thinks they're above the law, somebody who thinks that the press is the enemy of the people, and that violence is used. And I have resisted calling Trump a fascist. I have said that he's the most undemocratic president that the U.S. has ever had. I am now calling him a fascist, except that I think he'd like it so much, so I won't. <laughs> let me let me uh, start taking you on a world tour, and 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 perhaps I think it's it's important to begin on with China, and in particular, you saw that Xi Jinping recently was the keynote at the World Economic Forum meeting recently, and you know with its perspective for growth and increasing global reach the management of the virus, the new trade agreement with your many experts think that this year and indeed maybe the next decade is going to be the decade of China's. Are they right? I think they are right. I think that it's certainly going to be everybody always attaches rising to them. They clearly are a major power and they are creating a lot of policies and a lot of policies against them, by the way. I do think that the U.S.-Chinese relationship is going to be dominant in so many areas. And I understand that uh, President Biden had a conversation with Xi Jinping and that President Biden laid out already what the issues were that were so troubling, which had to do with human rights, the things that was ha were happening with the Uyghurs, Hong Kong, talked about the independence uh, of Taiwan, President Biden did. And I think it's going to be a a multifaceted relationship, as, as we say diplomatically. There clearly is competition as an adversary in terms of the kind of military actions that they're taking in the South and East China Sea and the flyovers and the way that they have increased their military capabilities. There also will be competition, primarily in the trade area, where there'll be questions about intellectual property and various ways that we follow through on trade deals. But I also think, and I have heard, that uh, the Biden administration wants to find areas where we can cooperate. And that would be on climate change, on basically dealing with pandemics better than we've done, and then on nuclear proliferation. So it's going to be a very important time. 
I don't think that the Chinese will dominate the world scene, but I do think they will, in fact, play a major role in terms of our relations and our allies' relations with them. Let's let's move to Russia. We had on all Tamar somebody who you and I both know well, Evo Dalder from the Chicago Council on Foreign Affairs, and he called Joe Biden the first post-Cold War president to condemn Russia because Russia has again become our principal adversary. Biden has had pretty harsh words for the Kremlin and for Putin, and he's shown, you know, he's mentioned where Putin has flexed his muscles in Western election interference and cyber crimes in the repression of Navalny. How do you anticipate this relationship will take shape under the Biden administration? And are we preparing for a new version of the Cold War? Well, I don't think we're preparing for a new version of the Cold War, but it's going to be a stressful relationship. What I find interesting is that Putin has played a weak hand well, frankly, in terms of the exertion of Russian power in the Middle East the kinds of activities through threats and cyber operations in Central and Eastern Europe to separate our allies from us. And we need to remember that we actually are dealing with a former KGB agent who knows how to use a a number of subversive tactics. Also, Putin got a free ride under the last administration. And I think that what we're going to see is going to be a characteristic of the Biden administration, which is telling it like it is, that there are very serious problems. I do think also that I would say this about how the Biden administration is going to behave is to deal with people with whom and countries with whom we have major disagreements and try to sort out what we do when and where. But clearly there are problems with the treatment of Navalny and talk about American sanctions uh, of the major people that are involved with that, including Putin, and then really dealing with our friends and allies to have a, a common front. What is interesting in terms of that last point is that the way that Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia, treated Borrell, the uh, representative, the, the main foreign policy person for the EU, was really outrageous in every way. And while there have been some countries in Europe that have talked about having a softer approach to the Russians, I think that there's going to be a rediscussion of all of that within the EU. And I think we're going to have a difficult relationship. What is interesting, however, and again, to the point that there will be a variety of ways to do things, is that the Biden administration decided to work on extending the New START Treaty with the Russians which means that there is an avenue for um, dialogue and working together on issues that bother both of us. Let's go back to Europe for a minute. It seems that Europe is trying to find its way in a world of global superpowers. And we've seen over the four years of Trump, Europe trying to regroup with a newfound cohesion, but others say that Europe faces many headwinds right now, a departed Britain, a retiring Merkel, economies weakened by COVID that were already weakened by refugees, terrorism, massive protests. So they've also done things like sign a trade agreement with China. So in the context of these multiple crises and kind of new alliances, what do you think is the economic and political role of the EU just in the future, in the near future? Well, let me say, I uh, am a born European, 
I just happen to have been raised in the United States. <clears throat> so I always make my assessments of the Europeans as honest as I possibly can when I speak with them or about them. I have described the relationship from the very beginning in the following way, kind of in a family way, which is that right after World War II, they were like a sick child that were willing to take any medicine that we had to offer. Then they turned out to be teenagers and they wanted to know where their allowance was and that they weren't going to do any chores. And then we never really developed an adult relationship with them. What happened, and I find that because of my connections with European leaders, at the time that President Obama decided to rebalance to Asia, I got a bunch of calls from European leaders saying, you've forgotten us, you've abandoned us. And I said, no, you used to be part of the problem. Now you're part of the solution. We need to work together. And that is what we need to do, that we're very strong if we work together. There have been differences, which again have been exacerbated in the last four years. I fully agree with the way you've described the problems Europeans are facing, but I think that we need to work with them. The EU is a very complicated operation and nationalism is rising again in Europe. And there really are some unacceptable leaders such as Orban in Hungary, but I do think they are going through Uh, difficulties, as are we, in terms of rebuilding. And I do hope that we can figure out how to make that adult relationship work now. Let's pivot to the Middle East, where there's been significant realignment backed by the U.S., and where countries like Bahrain, the UAE, and increasingly Saudi Arabia have formalized relations with Israel, forming a, a block against Iran, putting Palestinians on the back burner. Do you see these plans advancing with the new government? Well, I think, again, It has to be understood in uh, breaking down some of the issues. You know, we talk about the Middle East, but it's a very complicated part. And by the way, when I worked for President Clinton, President Clinton was somebody who read a lot and he assigned books to us. So one that he assigned to me was called The Peace to End All Peace, which was a history about the creation of the modern Middle East after World War I. And it is a very complex place that we have not fully understood is that there's some artificial countries, that there are countries with ethnic conflicts, that there's an ongoing battle between the Persians and the Arabs, that would be Iran and Saudi Arabia. And then, of course, uh, the various issues surrounding Israel, our friend and ally. So it is very complicated. I believe that there's certain parts that the Trump administration did that have value in terms of developing a better relationship with some of the Arab countries the Abraham Accords, I think that and their recognition of Israel. There has been some movement also in terms of some of the Arab countries making friends with each other again, such as Saudi Arabia and Qatar. But there continue to be very serious problems, obviously with Iran, because of the dismissal and backing out of the uh, agreement over uh, arms, the JCPOA by the Trump administration and which brought kind of automatic snapback on sanctions. And now we're trying to figure out how to move on that. My sense is, is the Biden administration would like to do things with Iran, re-engaging on the JCPOA and adding some other parts to it. But like so many negotiations, the question is, where do you begin? Who uh, says what, when? And there's been a recent report by the monitoring group at the UN that the Iranians have been 
really re-engaging in terms of how to uh, develop their nuclear capabilities uh, with the kind of really expanding what they're doing that they shouldn't have been doing. And there's also increasing concerns of expansion of terror groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS into Africa, in particular in exceedingly vulnerable areas like the Sahel. So there's violence, displacement, illegal activity also in the sub-Saharan region. We see China extensively reaching through Belt and Road initiatives, and but the worldwide France seems to be the only country actually taking action. Is this a giant hotspot that could grow? I definitely think it can for a number of reasons. I know people kind of say Africa, but there are 54 different countries in Africa, and they have different backgrounds, history, ethnic composition, various different problems with their neighbors. And um, they are often not really part of the story enough in terms of what is happening. Uh, They are victims of climate change in many ways, the whole areas having turned into deserts, which creates people that can't make a living and uh, have contributed to the migration issues. They do have problems with COVID. They are told to wash their hands when they don't even have enough water to drink. So the question is the distribution of the vaccine. How are they taking care of that? And then also that they do have different trade ties. By the way, I have said the Chinese must be getting very fat because the belt keeps getting larger and larger. And they are using their economic suasion to uh, really seduce a lot of countries in Africa who then are saddled with what is known as the debt trap, where all of a sudden they are uh, more debtors to the Chinese than being really recipients of aid. And so it is a very difficult and complicated area that requires attention. There's no question by the U.S. and the world for any number of reasons, not for colonial purposes, but for really working together to solve the kinds of various disputes and problems that they have. Another place where the Chinese have uh, uh, opened the notch on their belt is in Latin America, which is in decline after decades of economic recovery and combating inequality. But now there's you know, rampant corruption, poor management of the COVID virus, problematic leaders, whether it's, of course, in Venezuela, but also in big countries like Mexico and Brazil. Does the U.S. and Europe have a leadership role to play in stabilizing a region which is also a fundamentally Western region? Well, I do think that we have to remember that this is the Western hemisphere. Uh, Our relationship, the American relationship, with Latin America is very difficult, frankly, which is that we are damned if to do or damned if we don't. If we don't pay attention to them, they're very angry for good reason. And if we do, they say we're interfering. And this has been going on, I think, for quite a long time. And by the way, the most radical revolutionary thing I did uh, when I was in the State Department was to move Canada into the Western Hemisphere. According to the State Department, it was in Europe. And it actually is in the Western Hemisphere. And I did it because we wanted to, because they are in the Western Hemisphere, but also because as a strong democracy, it really showed the kinds of things that we could do together. I do think that there have to be combination of a plan, and I believe there is by the Biden administration already, in terms of understanding that many of the countries need economic help. And that's true of the Northern Triangle, specifically in terms of uh, where there's the question about 
emigrants and or refugees that are coming that I believe that people prefer to live in the country where they were born if they aren't afraid and can make a living. So there have been actions like that. There needs to be more of an understanding about what is the issue in each country. And I think there needs to be attention clearly by the United States and by Europe, but basically the countries themselves. There is this tendency, as I said, the the Latin Americans don't want to be told what to do. And we have to be very conscious of that. I spent a large part of my time uh, as Secretary of State on Plan Colombia. And it really uh, was an attempt to understand what was happening there, uh, how we could work together, what the effect was on the neighboring countries, issues of human rights, drug trafficking. And I think attention has to be paid. And it is our responsibility to act in a way that is not condescending and patronizing, but understanding that there are issues and we are together in this hemisphere. And it does affect how uh, things develop in other parts. We had started talking about China. And the truth was that a lot of Latin America is on the Pacific Ocean and that they also have relationships with China and Asia and that there are different ways that we can work together on that as well as on the Atlantic coast. So I think that we need to improve our relationships. We've taken a brief trip around the world, and let's talk for a minute about the future of multilateralism, whether it's the UN or NATO or G7 or the G20 and all of the post-war organizations seem to now face hugely different challenges. And whether it's climate change or polarization caused by social media media and fake news, global health, how do we begin to create organizations that will face the new challenges of this decade? By the way, a good segue I just thought of is we were everywhere except at the North Pole and the South Pole. That we were. <laughs> and I have been to the North Pole, and you can actually see what the effects of climate change is there, which needs cooperation, needs multilateralism. And definitely it's true at the South Pole also. But I am known as multilateral Madeline. And I believe in those kinds of organizations. The truth is that Americans don't like the word multilateralism. <clears throat> it has too many syllables and it ends in an ism. But it is basically just partnerships. And I think that I hope that as we went around the world, it's clear that the problems that are out there need partnerships to work together on them. We talked about uh, uh, several of them already. And so I think we need to look at that. I do think, however, one has to keep in mind the following thing. The major multilateral organization, the United Nations, was created as a, right after World War II, which makes it uh, 75 years old and it needs fixing. There's no question. I love being ambassador to the UN, but the bottom line is that it needed fixing then. And we, by the way, put there was something called the Trusteeship Council that was set up to deal with the trust territories with the end of colonization. When there were no more trust territories, we put the Trusteeship Council in what we call sleeping beauty condition. And so there are ways to revive it to do something else with a different word. And there does need to be change. But, and this is the big but, if the United States is going to be involved at the UN, we have to pay our bills and we have to sit at the table. 
And uh, I'm very glad that President Biden has put us back at the World Health Organization. The United States is going to be president of the Security Council in March. There are a number of parts of the UN that need to be fixed. And by the way, when I was at the UN, I was an instructed ambassador. And among my instructions were to work on reform of the UN. And at the same time, we had not paid our bills. And Congress unilaterally decided to lower the percentage that we were supposed to pay for the peacekeeping budget, leading the British to deliver a line they had waited over 200 years to say, which was representation without taxation. And so if you're going to push for reform, you have to be there and not be part of the problem. I also do think that what has happened is that there have been a number of First of all, Chapter 8 of the UN Charter provides for regional organization because the OAS predated the United Nations and recognized that there was a role for regional organizations. And they are now much more within the scope of what needs to be done. We've talked about Africa, the African Union, a number of them. And also what has happened is there have been some regional organizations that have sprouted really because of the need the G7, the G10, the G20, a number of different parts. And people do see the importance of having organizations where more than one country works to solve a problem. So whether people like the word multilateralism or not, let's call it partnership. And that's what we should be doing. Secretary Albright, one last question, and it's an important one about the private sector. You've often often mentioned the role of the private sector as a force for development and progress, a partner to government. You yourself served for a number of years in the public sector. Now you own and run Albright Stonebridge, a global company. Peter, my co-host, has a gastro advocacy business and immigrant food where he does combine activism and definitely a political role in his wonderful restaurant. How do you see the role of the private sector and more importantly, the responsibility of the private sector in this very globalized, complicated world? I see a very large role. And let me just say, I came to that uh, when I was secretary of state. By the way, It makes people nervous when they hear you learn something when you are Secretary of State. But I had been asked to by the techies, John Chambers from Cisco, to come out and talk to them about what the government could do for them. And they said nothing. And I said, that's crazy. You need the government to get market access and deal with regulations. And I put more economic counselors in our embassies. Then the opposite happened. I'd go to China, for instance, and speak to the American chamber and there'd be huge audiences and I would learn nothing. So I decided that I wanted to meet with the representatives of our corporations in China, which I did at a round table. And I learned an awful lot about what they saw in a country that was different from the diplomats. So when I came back, I created a prize for American corporations that were good local citizens. And so I got fascinated by the whole concept of public-private partnerships. And I believe that that's a very important part because uh, we need each other. And the private sector is absolutely essential in terms of getting things done. And I did start the company in order to, to really prove the point. And that is the important part about how to, how to make this work. There is a problem, however, and I discovered that as I was doing various things 
in a thing called Partners for a New Beginning that had to do with something that Secretary Clinton wanted done with Muslim majority countries. And that is that it's like trying to put two Lego pieces together that don't fit. And it's very important. And therefore, I am agitating about the fact that the private sector needs to be at the table earlier. It can't just be brought in at the end once the public sector has had meetings and and hasn't thought through how that partnership works. And I hope we can do more of that. And I hope very much that it, it really does fit in to the things that President Biden has been saying in terms of understanding about rebuilding, understanding jobs, understanding that there is a role for the private sector. And I think that that partnership is very important, but it rests on the private sector being at the table at the beginning, not in the middle or the end. Secretary Madeleine Albright, thank you for joining us on Altamar. My pleasure. Good to be with you. Mooney, what a great interview. We ran out of time, but it's better to hear Madeleine Albright than to hear us. Thank you all for joining us on Altamar, where every other Friday we bring you a truly global perspective from international heavyweights. And you can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. See you next time.